You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Well, I don't want this evening to talk about worship. I want to talk to you as worship leaders. And I want to talk about what I think is the irony of ironies, a dangerous irony, an irony that I think is forgotten by thousands and thousands of worship leaders, an irony that, if forgotten, will mess with your work, will distort what you do. Will bring trouble to your calling. How's that for an introduction? The irony is this. Hear what I'm about to say. The danger of idolatry is never more present than in moments of supposed worship. The danger of idolatry is never more present than in moments of the supposed worship of God. You don't have to go very far in Scripture to see that. How about Genesis 4, where we see the homicidal envy of Cain because Abel's sacrifice of worship was accepted and Cain's wasn't. Now think about this. If what motivated Cain's heart was the true worship of God and God rejected his sacrifice, what would his response have been? Grief, confession, repentance, right? But his jealous murder reveals the fact it was never about God in the first place. It was all about Cain. The danger of idolatry is never more present than in acts and moments of the supposed worship of God. I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. I just want to read the first four verses here. My intention is not to exegete Colossians 3 for you, but to draw attention to the paradigm that is so powerfully presented in this passage. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I wish I could say to you that this irony that I've just talked about was not present in my own life. 
I wish I could say to you that this was not a danger for me, that I've been doing this long enough, that I've arrived. And I'm worried about those of you who still struggle with idolatry. Because that's a thing in my past. But I can't say that. For several years recently, I was the evening preacher at 10th Presbyterian Church. Historic church, faithful to the gospel for almost 200 years in the center of the city of Philadelphia. It's a great honor to be in that pulpit. 10th has one of those big, high pulpits that look like a boat crashed into the front of the building. You're <laughs> preaching from the bow. You have to wear an oxygen mask up there because the air is thin. And there was one particular elder at 10th that just didn't get the glory of my preaching. <laughs> and who would email me and ask if we could get together to talk about my preaching. I love that. <laughs> That's a lie. And he would put me through first-year seminary students' tutorials on preaching. This man who had never preached. <laughs> now, I would like to say to you that that didn't affect me. That I knew that my calling was not to aggrandize myself in the eyes of one man. But I would get up to preach on Sunday evening, and everybody in the congregation had a normal-sized head except for this man. His head appeared to me to be about this big. And he had the eyes of the Mona Lisa that look like they're looking at you no matter where you, where you move. And if it, I would notice him as I was preaching, and, and I would, it was like he had a big clipboard saying, Nope, not yet, not good enough. It drove me crazy. There was one week when I was footing the, footing the final touches on a sermon where I came to a certain point. Now check this out. And I'm thinking, this point will get him. Now that is a perversely idolatrous thought. This point will get him. He'll hear this, and at the end of the sermon, he'll come up front, and he'll bow before me and say, I was wrong. You were right. Your preaching is truly glorious. That's a horrible thing that I'm doing. The danger of idolatry is never more present than in moments of the supposed worship of God. Now here's the paradigm of this passage. There's two things that you've got to get out of this passage that will launch us into our conversations. Here's the first thing. You, all of us, 
everyone in this room is in possession of a seeking heart. You must never, ever forget that you have been hardwired by God to have a seeking heart. And that seeking function of your heart is meant to drive you into worship and submission and giving everything of yourself to God. That's why you've been wired that way. So you would move toward God, you would know God, you would worship God, you would obey God, you would celebrate God, that there would be a Godward focus to everything you do in your life. That's why you have a seeking heart. And what your heart seeks for is life, life that is only ever found in God. Identity, meaning and purpose, satisfaction, fulfillment, security, all the things that would define what spiritual life was about. Your heart is seeking. You must never forget that you have a seeking heart. Your heart is always seeking. Because that's the way you were wired. And below, hear this, this is so important to understand, below every word you say, below every choice you make, below all of your decisions, all of your actions, all the things that you do is a seeking heart. All of those things are formed by your seeking heart. There is always seeking direction into everything you do. And there's a way in which, if you, could, if you could be objective enough to watch the video of your life, it would reveal those things that your heart regularly seeks. Because your words reveal what your heart seeks. Your actions reveal what your heart thinks. Your relationships reveal what your heart thinks, seeks. You are in possession of a seeking heart. Second piece of the paradigm. You have life. You don't need to hunt for life. You don't need to look for life. You don't need to quest for life. You don't need to fear that you won't find life. You don't need to hunger for life. I love the declaration that's here. It says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now listen. When Christ who, what does it say next? Is your life. Hear this. Between the already of your conversion and the not yet of your home going, you have life in the fullness. And hear this. Life is not a substance. Life is not a theology. Life is not a choice. Life is not an action. Life is a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. God hasn't given you abstract grace. Your and my need was so deep and so great and so profound, the only solution God could find was to give us himself. And we have him. And it's absolutely an act of gospel amnesia 
of gospel irrationality, of gospel insanity for a believer to seek life. To shop for all of the things that you find in Christ somehow horizontally. It makes no sense whatsoever, but that's exactly what we do. Hunting, giving ourselves in the pursuit of a whole catalog of Christ replacements. Earthbound quasi-messiahs. When we have it all in Christ, listen, your leading of worship will affirm the fullness of what you've been given in Christ or will affirm that you're an amnesiac. You will lead out of a celebration of the fullness that you found in Jesus or your leadership will be distorted by seeking horizontally what you've already been given vertically. It's inescapably true. And probably for most of us, honestly, we're torn between the two. There are moments when we are gospel amnesiacs. And we give ourselves to anxiety and worry and fear and fear of man and performance anxiety and all those kinds of distortions and dysfunctions that result from forgetting what we've been given in Christ. So here's the paradigm. You have a seeking heart. And your heart need not seek for life because you've been given life. And life is not a thing. Life is a person. And his name is Jesus. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. He is your life. Now notice... That paradigm, those two affirmations, then lead to this call, this warning, these directives. If this is true, and it is, if this is the reality in which you live, if this has actually been given to you by grace, then seek the things that are above not the things on this earth. Don't ask earth to do for you what has already been done for you in Christ. Maybe this needs to be said in this sort of stark way. Maybe we need to remember this. Maybe this needs to be put on your mirror that you look on in the morning. Here it is. Earth will never be your savior. All of the glories of this created earth are meant to be fingers to point you to the one who alone will ever give you life. Life cannot be found on earth. That's not the function of the created world. And that happens to us. Why is it 
that this preacher who's been given fullness in Christ is totally captured by the respect of one man. Why does that so grip me? Why does that kidnap me? Why does that distort my duty? Why? Why am I so susceptible to the praise of people? Why am I so attuned to what people think of me? Why do I kick myself all over the place in a moment when I mess up? Why do I need congratulations? Why do I crave power, control, influence? Why? Because the war is not over for me. You see, here's what you have to say, and this is what this is what Paul is speaking into in this passage in these wonderful words. Listen. Life between the already and the not yet is war. There's a war being fought on the turf of your heart. There's war fought for the control of your soul. This is war. Because sin still lives inside of me, because sin still lives inside of me, there's a susceptibility to seek horizontally what I can only ever find vertically. There's a susceptibility for me to want to be in the center, me to want to have attention, for me to want to get glory. To take what is meant to point to God and want it to point to me. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm describing right now the struggle out of 10 out of 10 people in this room. I can't imagine. I'm not saying this because I'm doing this right now. But I can't imagine having a conference focused on worship without talking about what we're talking about right now. Because underneath all of the accoutrements of your calling is this battle we're now talking about. As you're leading worship, as you're planning worship, as you're building relationship with your worship team, as you're doing all of the functions that are involved with worship, what does your heart seek? What are you after? If you look back on a week and say that was a great week, what is the basis of you saying that? What, is, what are the things that made you satisfied, made you happy, made you content? 
If at the end of leading a public service of worship and you're excited, what's excited you? What's the content of that excitement? What what has your heart gotten out of that moment? What is your heart seeking in that moment? What do you want out of your calling? What satisfies you in your calling? What motivates you in your calling? You see, there's only two categories that Paul offers us. My seeking heart will seek after things of this earth or will seek things above. Those are the only two categories. I'm either looking for life horizontally, looking for that deep sense of inner peace and meaning and purpose and satisfaction and joy and contentment and hope horizontally or I'm finding it vertically. Seek the things that are above, not the things of this earth. I want to ask you to do something in this holy moment that we have together. I want to ask you right now to bow your head and to pray a prayer that God in grace would reveal to you what your heart seeks as you do what he's called for you to do. Ask that right now. It's a dangerous prayer. Well, what I want to do next is give you four above things to seek. They're really embedded in this passage. Four things to seek that become tracks on which you're calling to lead worship can run. Four words, here they are. Glory, grace, redemption, kingdom. Glory, grace, redemption, kingdom. First, seek glory. No, no, no. Don't misunderstand me. Not your glory. God's. Think with me. Could there be any more stunning revelation of the glory of God's grace than that any rebellious, self-oriented, independent, loving, 
rebel sinner would ever for a moment bow his head and his knees in worship to God. Every time you, with a whole and willing heart, participate in worship, you are experiencing the stunning glory of God's grace. Only God's grace has the power to turn self-worshippers into the worship of God. Think with me also that the content of the truths that you want people to understand and to meditate on and to take in and to live, the content of that truth is a revelation of the grandeur and glory of God's wisdom. Who would have ever thought of this plan? Who would have ever conceived these truths? Who would have ever unfolded these deep mysteries? No one but our God. Every moment of worship is not only a revelation of the glory of his grace, it's a revelation of the stunning glory of his wisdom. But there's a third thing. Your whole life as a minister of worship is a revelation of the glory of God's sovereignty. All of the natural gifts that you have are given to you by the plan of a sovereign God. The story of everything that's prepared you, all those early music lessons, all of that understanding of worship, all of those things are all about God ruling over situations and relationships and locations to prepare you to do what he has ordained for you to do. All of the opportunities that you've had to to use those gifts are the result of his sovereignty. All of your working up the ladder to be a person of some kind of influence is, is a revelation of his sovereignty. Hear this. Your position as a worship leader, is not a revelation of your character. It's not God endorsing your character. It's a revelation of His. Hear this. There is no glory for us in this. None. Every aspect of it, all of the grace that brought me to this point, all of the wisdom that brought me to this point, all of the sovereignty that brought me to this point belongs to God and God alone. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's no glory for me. None. There's nothing to be boastful about. There's nothing to be proud of. There's nothing to blow out your chest and wait for requisite applause. Nothing. It's all of Him. It's all His glory. And to take glory of myself is to be a glory thief. Verse 
because I'm stealing glory that does not belong to me because every aspect of it, the whole story of my work reveals the glory of his grace and the glory of his wisdom and the glory of his sovereignty. Every time I stand in front of people, that triad glory is being revealed. Seek glory. Seek grace. You see, the humbling thing you need to recognize as one who leads worship is that the greatest dangers of this calling, are you ready for this? I'm about to hurt your feelings. The greatest dangers exist inside of you, not outside of you. That danger yet lurks within your heart. And you see, you can, you can run from a situation. You can run from a relationship. You can run from a location, but you can't run from you. I don't know what your experience is, but I found every time I try to run from me, I show up with me at the end of the run. And so you are a person in need of rescue. And that rescue is yours in Christ. You, you and I must confess that we need the rescuing grace of Christ as much today as we did when we first believed. I yet need to be rescued from me. Not just from you, not just from the dangers of a fallen world. Think about this. It's only, only ever the evil inside of me that hooks me to the evil outside of me. The greatest danger exists here. And because of that, I'm, I'm, I'm ever, always a person in need of rescue. I have personally committed myself to praying these three prayers every morning. I try to do this before I get out of bed, lest I forget. First prayer, it's a confession. God, I'm a person in desperate need of help today. God, I'm a person in desperate need of help today. Second prayer, I pray that in your grace, you would send your helpers my way. Maybe that's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe that's a passage of Scripture. Maybe that's a portion from a book I'm reading. God, send your helpers my way. Third prayer. And, oh, Lord, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. God, I'm a person in desperate need of help today. Won't you in your grace please send your helpers my way? And Lord, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. Seek glory, 
seek grace, seek redemption. Let your heart be gripped by the grand, eternal, yet street-level, practical work of redemption. Let not your work, your calling, become a vehicle for your personal definition of happiness. May everything you do in all of your planning, in all of the relationships with the people you work with, in all of your public context, be for the purpose of celebrating and exegeting and propelling God's work of redemption. May it all be to lift up the Redeemer. May it all be to remind people who forget the glory of what they've been given in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm saying. May everything you do be done as an ambassador of the Redeemer. May you never own any of those moments for yourself, taking what is meant to be redemptive as an opportunity to get something you want at that moment. Seek redemption. And then, seek the kingdom. You see, it is war. Leading of worship is war. It's a war between the claustrophobic, individualistic kingdom of self and God's grand, eternal kingdom of glory and grace. He really is kingdoms in conflict. Now, the scary thing Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, is that Jesus came, hear this, so that those who live, can you finish this? Will no longer live for themselves. That's what sin does to me. Sin turns me in on myself. Sin makes it all about me. Sin pulls the borders of my motivation, the borders of my concern, the borders of my values, the borders of my priorities, the borders of my goals and purposes down to the claustrophobic confines of my wants, my needs, my feelings. Sin is self-absorbed, self-possessed, shockingly self-focused. Sin is fundamentally meistic. It's not a word. I made it up. And so it's, it's very easy 
to take what is meant to be about God's kingdom and use it as a vehicle for building my little claustrophobic kingdom of one. Listen, you know how you help build the kingdom of God? By doing ministry. You know how you build the kingdom of self? By doing ministry. That's the danger. The one on the surface seems like grand, big, glorious, eternal, God-oriented kingdom is actually about the kingdom of self. I'm up there preaching the gospel. I'm focused on one man, and all I care about is his approval. I don't give a rip what else happens that evening. There it is. I confessed it. I don't care about redemption. I don't care about the truth. I don't care about God's glory. I want that man to walk down that stupid aisle and say, you're a great preacher. And on the surface, it looks like I'm doing kingdom work. Well, I am. But it's this kingdom. God help me. And at that moment, this is shocking to me. I'm making this public confession. I couldn't care less about God's kingdom. I got the Bible in front of me. I'm speaking truth. And in my heart, God has left the building. My dear wife would say to me, she's such a gospel irritant. <laughs> Makes me nuts. She would say to me, why do you care? I can't figure out why you care. And I would argue about why I should care. As I'm arguing, I know she's right. But I argue anyway. Those of you who are married know those moments. I'm defending what is indefensible. Well, he's an elder. It's important that we're on the same page. It sounds so spiritual. A house divided can't stand. It's in the Bible. <laughs> and she would stand in front of me. This is so irritating. Unconvinced. Needs to be asked. Be honest. Whose kingdom are you building? Don't be too quick to answer. Don't be too proud not to examine your heart. Could you say that if I sat next to you and I watched the video of the last six months of your work, as a worship leader 
that I would clearly say the life of this person and the ministry of this person has been shaped by the seeking of glory and grace and redemption and kingdom. Would I? Would I? Well, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, Paul, I'm glad you flew down to Louisville to encourage us. (laughs) Well, I want to do that. There's another part of the paradigm here. In Colossians 3, it says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here I'm about to say, we can talk about this stuff. We can confess our struggle. We can humbly examine our hearts. We can be the most Honest community on earth because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now that means two things. It means that he rules. Ephesians 1 says he rules over all things for the sake of his body, the church. Why is the rule of Christ important? Because here it is. The promise is that Christ has made to you are only as reliable as the extent of his sovereignty. He is able to deliver those promises because he's sovereign over every situation and every location and every circumstance in which they need to be delivered. Isn't that beautiful? The reliability, the faithfulness The security of his promises are rooted in his absolute sovereignty over everything, every moment in which those promises are needed. He rules. But there's a second thing. He is your advocate. He pleads your case. And that pleading is not based on your righteousness, but on his. He has a perfect, unassailable argument because he is perfectly righteous. That means that people like you and me, broken, lost, failing, disloyal, fickle, as we are, weak, vulnerable as we are, rebels as we may be, selfish as we are, falling way below God's standard, can run into the presence of a holy God, confessing 
our sin and our need without fear of his rejection because Jesus, our righteousness, sits at the right hand of the Father and he pleads on our behalf. How beautiful is that? And because of that, Scripture never asks you to deny reality. If you're denying reality, you may reach temporary personal peace, but you're not exercising biblical faith. Biblical faith is shockingly honest because our security is not in what we've done, but in what has been done for us by the righteous one who now sits in rulership and advocacy at the right hand of God. That's why we can gather. That's why we can talk about those things. You have a seeking heart. Your heart searches for life. It can only look two places, earth or above. Where will your heart look? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for that grandeur yet street-level, surgical practicality of your truth that exposes us and motivates us, encourages us, and rescues us. But more than that, we are thankful for Jesus. Oh, we don't, we don't place our hope in a system of redemption. We place our hope in a redeemer. Life is a person. Name Jesus. Thank you that he is our life. And because of that, we are freed from seeking on earth what has been delivered to us from above. Give us humble and open and self-examining hearts, we will pray, that we may seek your glory. We may affirm our need of grace. We may be ambassadors of your redemption. And we may be tools in the continuing building of your kingdom. Yours be the honor. Yours the glory, yours the kingdom. O Lamb, O Savior, O King, Jesus. Amen.